All right, church, what I'm about to uh, do, the lyrics from a song I'm about to read will date myself, meaning that some of you, when you find out how old I am by the music I'm quoting, you'll think, man, he's an old geezer. And a lot of you are thinking right now, no, he's just a young whippersnapper. <laughs> so I, uh, I grew up um, in South Jersey, and I went to high school in the early 90s down in South Jersey. And that was probably the most influential time of music in my life. It was grunge music. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But believe it or not, it wasn't the first album I ever listened to, and it wasn't the first pop uh, musician that I ever was really um, uh, exposed to. The first one was none other than Billy Joel. Billy Joel, many of us know Billy Joel. We know his songs. His songs have impacted our country and even beyond for generations, for decades. And one of his albums was the first album that I ever listened to, and it really did impact me. And I remember even in hindsight listening to it and just loving the music and loving the beats, but not really understanding the content of the words that were being spoken. So as I was praying over this passage, and as I was praying over this simple truth, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This song keep, can't come popping into my mind. Let me read the lyrics and see if you know which, which song I'm talking about. The first lyric goes like this. Come out, Virginia. Don't let me wait. And I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. You're you Catholic girls start much too late. Sooner or later, it comes down to fate. I might as well be the one. They showed you a statue. They told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. But they never told the price you would pay for the things you might have done. Only the good. You got a nice white dress and a party on your confirmation. You got a brand new soul and a cross of gold. But Virginia, they didn't give you quite enough information. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better. I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know, only the good die young. It's not just the music of this song that has connected with people for decades now, but yes, of course, the message and the mantra. It is speaking to a cultural stereotype of Christianity. Now, he's talking about a girl, and he's talking about Catholicism, but have no doubt and make no mistake, he is talking about holiness in heaven. If there is a heaven, some say it's better, I say it ain't, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. This cultural understanding of holiness and of heaven has so permeated our thinking that even when we come to this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, when we hear the words holy and we hear the words joy, we have to almost redeem the language that we're using. These words, joy and happiness, have become under such cultural appropriation, we have to drag them under scriptural revelation so that we could truly understand. Billy Joel says, they didn't give you enough information. 
What leads to an outbreak of joy here at this moment with God's people in Israel's history? It's that they understood. Is that they did get all the information they needed. And it was the best news that they ever heard. Let's look at it, shall we? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What we're seeing here is that after the walls of Jerusalem have been built, after the temple has been restored, the exiles have come in, and you could tell that the Holy Spirit's moving because God's people want to hear God's law. They ask Ezra, they ask Ezra to come and read the law. And for six hours, they listen to the law, and these leaders and these Levites explain and instruct the law. And when they hear the law, it leads to a weeping over sin and something unexpected happens. The script gets flipped and all of these leaders say, no, this day is holy. Stop grieving. Wait, wait, wait a second. So you're saying this day is holy and stop grieving? I thought because this day is holy, I should keep grieving. So even then, we have a difficult time. God's people have a difficult time understanding holiness and happiness. So let me ask you some questions, okay? The first one's very, very easy. The second one is going to get you to think a little bit. First one, ready? Is God holy? Easy. In fact, not only does the Bible say he is holy, that is the attribute attributed to God most, most more than any other attribute, even God's love. The holiness of God is communicated consistently over and over again throughout all of Scripture. Okay, the first question is, is God holy? You ready for the next one? Is God happy? Yeah. I think. Right? What's up? That's a hard one to answer. All right, now, part of it's hard is because explicitly the Bible says, 1 John 4, God is love, right? Uh, the, the, the prophets, the cherubim, the angels, they all cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's not an explicit verse that says God is happy. Oh, but if we were to study from Genesis to Revelation and truly understand the implications of the gospel and see its emphasis on joy, I think our categories of who God is, but not only that, what holiness is would be widened and deepened. So let me ask you more questions. Ready? Is Jesus against your joy? Right? Well, it kind of depends where you're finding your joy. Is the Holy Spirit against your happiness? No. No. But do we need the word of God to serve like an anvil on our definitions of happiness and holiness? Probably. Probably. There is an understanding that many probably think the Holy Spirit should be renamed the unhappy spirit. And yet, when we turn to the scriptures, when we're filled with the fruits of the spirit, we're filled first and foremost with love, but then second, joy. 
Why is it that many of us are living a joyless journey with Jesus? And it's taking us from not only sharing the good news of Jesus, but also keeping us in this state of fragility and weakness. Why in this passage is joy connected to strength? What does joy have to do with strength? Joy, we would think, leads to laughter and to smiles, to happiness, which it does. This is different. This is the kind of joy that picks you up in the midst of your sin and gives you hope, helps you put that next foot in front of the other and say, yes, because of this joy, I can keep walking. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is category changing. Ready? Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what set before him? For the joy set before him, very good, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't pretend to understand that kind of joy at all. Let's be honest. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured nails, a crown of thorn, scourging. Oh yeah, we need God's word to redirect the ship, to realign our definitions of what joy is. And I think Nehemiah chapter 8 helps us do that. What we see here in verse 9 is that the people start to weep and mourn over their sin. Is that a bad thing? No. We should grieve over our sin because as the Bible says, our sin grieves God. That our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Have you ever marveled at that? That the same cosmic creator and sustainer of all, the one who is simultaneously holding every atom in its place, is also affected by how we live. It is possible to grieve God. We can grieve his spirit. So yes, we should be grieved over sin. Yet many of us, we have a hard time getting out of the grief and entering into the gladness. Many of us, because we live this kind of paradox, because we try to walk this worldly and simultaneously godly lifestyle, we're miserable. There's no joy left. So this sign that they're weeping is a good sign. Believe it or not, I would submit to you that the joyless Christian is probably a Christian that hasn't weeped enough. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me use uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, has, as he articulates this truth. He says, you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with the miserable Christian is that he has never been truly made miserable because of the conviction of his sin. 
Meaning that there's a lot of Christians that are walking around, those that profess to know Jesus, those that profess to believe in eternity in heaven, yet they have succumbed to this kind of man-centered, man-made gospel where you just do the best you can and hopefully God forgives you, hopefully God lets you into his kingdom. In the end, yeah, we believe Jesus died a long time ago, but it's up to me. It's up to my obedience, my faithfulness, my moral aptitude, and it robs you of joy. No, that's not the good news. The good news is that we were dead in our sin. You've heard me say it before. The gospel is not God making bad people good. The good news is God making dead people alive forevermore. We needed the gospel of Jesus Christ because we had no hope. So we grieve and we mourn over our sin. And then when we understand just how much we needed saving, then we have a true love that's deeper for the Savior and everything has a silver lining of joy on it. Even your circumstances, even your uh, life, by definition, by our cultural understanding, might not be a happy life. And yet you could have more joy in your heart than anyone that had everything the world ever said led to happiness. Did you get that? You could have everything that the world says. I mean, this is, this is how it works, right? It's an equation, right? Happiness is math. You have this plus this minus that plus this times a lot of these. That equals happiness. And then when our equations fall apart and our simple math is revealed and exposed as erroneous math, we actually get angry at God. We're actually frustrated in our faith because we believe that he's here to help us achieve this math equation. The simple truth is any addition to the gospel is actually subtraction, right? That we needed Jesus, and we always do. Not just on our worst day. We need him on our best day. We weep over sin. And then once we understand that it's atoned for, once we truly understand that it has been fully forgiven, then we operate in a joy that man-based, man-centered, man-created religion knows nothing about. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. This doesn't make any sense, right? In the world's eyes, in the culture's eyes, the idea that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, we have no category for that. We avoid suffering at all times. Now, here at the church, Christianity, biblical faith, we don't pursue suffering as an end in itself, but we understand that in this fallen world, it can, it does, and it will happen. Is the joy of Jesus bigger and deeper than anything this world and our enemy could throw at us. Do we believe that? Hear Jesus say in John 16 these words, and I hope it encourages you today. Jesus says, truly, truly, everything Jesus ever said was true. When he said truly, truly, he really wanted us to pay attention, right? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. Hear the words of Christ. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Nobody. Amen. That was a woo-hoo. I love woo-hoos at church. <laughs> no one will take your joy from you. You see what we're seeing in Nehemiah here is a reversal of the Garden of Eden. If happiness was really circumstantial, then Adam and Eve would have had no desire to partake of that forbidden fruit. Ever thought about that? Like they had everything. Perfect paradise. No sin, no fighting, no death, no disease. And yet God says, there's one thing. It's not meant for you to partake of. And it will lead to death. It's the fruit of this tree. And the fruit of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. You see, I think we come to God's word because we understand that, yes, this will teach us what is evil. Do we come to God because we also want to know what's good? Absolutely. In the Garden of Eden, the fruit wasn't desirable because it was ripe or because it was succulent. No, the fruit was desirable because Adam and Eve, our first parents, they were not content to be made in the image of God. They wanted to be like God and partake of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, that's not for you. They didn't trust him with their categories, not only of evil, but also of good. And it led to the fall, and it led to sin permeating, affecting, and infecting every single atom of creation. We would have done the same thing. You see, even in paradise, circumstantial perfection, there was something they were still missing. So if we are striving after Something in this life, in this world, where we're just, man, we are working hard and we are striving. Now, working hard and striving for a goal and for something good is honorable. But if it is over and against what God has revealed as the true path to joy, don't be surprised when it's joyless. There is a direct correlation to our constant, incessant busyness as a people and our undeniable joylessness. If Jesus is the source of joy, just we never have time to talk to him, spend time with him, or read his word, we shouldn't be surprised where, yes, the things that we're professing are so divorced from our reality. The truth is, is that when we come to God's word, we are reminded that Jesus is not the enemy of our joy. Jesus is the origin and the originator of our joy. That God's holiness leads to true lasting happiness here in this passage in Nehemiah instead of instead of these people wanting to be like God they wanted to what be right with God instead of listening to the serpent and his lies they wanted to listen to God's word and his truth instead of oh gosh we do this all the time all the time instead of Adam blaming Eve and then Eve blaming the serpent what are these people doing Owning their junk, owning their sin, grieving over their sin. God, give us your word. We want to hear from you. We don't want to be like you. We want to be right with you. 
Forgive us of our sin. We're not blaming anyone else. We're done blaming everybody. I know I own this. This is me. And that is the beginning. I'm not grieving, per se, but believe it or not, gladness. Let's look at verse 10, shall we? Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved. There it is. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, biblically, according to the law, there were seasons of grieving and seasons of celebration. But I think this is very, very helpful for us today to know that when we turn from sin, there's also true, lasting joy. So I was studying this week, uh, Friday night actually, just a couple nights ago, uh, this passage. And I had my books and I had the Bible open and I just kept praying, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, and, and trying to conjure up this joy on my own strength. You remember that Seinfeld episode where George Cassandra kept saying, serenity now? Serenity now, serenity now, and insanity later. Like this kind of idea where you can just be happy like the Partridge family used to sing is not what the scriptures say. And it was evident, but what happened next as I was studying the Bible. All right, Lord, I'm praying, I'm studying. Teach me about the joy of the Lord is our strength. And all of a sudden I hear the door slam open downstairs and they scream, Daddy, come. Whatever happens next is usually not a good thing. I could tell it was bad. So I run downstairs. There's Ethan. And then walking through the door is Melissa um, holding Joshua. And uh, he cut his head. And he had blood pouring down his face. I need to mention that Joshua's okay. I forgot to mention that on Saturday night. So everybody came up to me and said, oh, my gosh, is the baby okay? He's six years old. But I thought to myself, later on when I'm in urgent care and this kid's getting his head all patched up, he was a boy being a boy, hurt his head on some wood. I'm thinking to myself, isn't that life? Literally, I'm, I'm supposedly doing something holy. I am a preacher, a pastor. I'm going to have to stand in front of you and say, hey, just be happy. But that's not the message. It's never been the message. My son was bleeding. His face covered in it. Did the joy of the Lord change? No. Because the joy of the Lord is constant, even if our circumstances are not. The joy of the Lord is sure, even if what we're placing our hope on is not. That's why in the end, hardship and trial can be a purifying blessing to help us see, all right, we claim that the joy of the Lord is our strength, but in the end, gosh, when this thing gets threatened, when this thing is potentially taken away, when this thing is about to be dethroned as the true joy in our lives, our whole identity is shaken. Our whole world is rattled. That can be a blessing. And that's part of the reason I believe James says this to start out his book, his wonderful letter. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. Count it all joy. Why? Because God is getting at your joy. He's purifying you of false joy so that he can lead you to the one true joy. 
And this joy leads to strength. Strength to do what? Let's look at it in verse 11, shall we? Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. It's the third time it's mentioned. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. There will be many, many people, millions of people throughout the whole world that will hear the words proclaimed to them. Now listen, there's a lot of churches that's not proclaiming the word. I get that. Plenty of churches that are rightfully dividing God's word and teaching it faithfully. They will hear the word. What made this different was that they understood it. The joy of the Lord is my strength when the joy of the Lord lifts me out of my grief and helps me to eat, helps me to rejoice, helps me to extend this joy to others. You see, when we're trying to do joy on our own and we're trying to do holiness on our own, then we realize fully and sometimes tragically that we're tapped out. We have nothing left to give. You come to church, pastor might preach a message like, why don't you do this more? You should be doing this. You got to do this harder, better, stronger. That's why a lot of dudes don't come to church because they already feel like they have a ton of pressure on their back and they don't need another place telling them what they're doing wrong. When we understand what true joy is, that it's found in Jesus Christ, then that leads to strength we didn't think we had. Not only strength, but it helps us to share this joy with others. You see, the portions are now getting distributed. People are rejoicing. Joy, true joy, is truly contagious. And that's why I want us to be honest about our struggles. I want us to be honest about our failings, our fragility. I want us to be vulnerable about the ways that we stumble and fall but when we truly have the joy of the Lord, people are going to come into this church and they're going to know something's just different. They're just going to know. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand the gospel, but they will. That beautiful diamond of Jesus-centered joy against the backdrop of a culture that is completely awash in pagan, sinful pride will look so enticing that people won't get it but they'll want it. When we come to Scripture, we are reminded of our hope as Christians. Do you remember when the prodigal son came back to the father? Yes, he said, I sinned against heaven and against you. But in that passage, in those three examples of the father's heart, of grace given to sinners, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who needs repentance? Everybody. Who doesn't think they need it? Self, everybody. <laughs> Good job. Self-righteous people, right? Which we can fall into that trap. I love this image, though, is that when we come in repentance back to a father who, yes, can tell that we are grieving over our sin. We have used the life that he gave us, the gifts that he gave us, as the prodigal did, and we have squandered it. We have wasted it in wild living, in a foreign land, away from him. And now, yes, he can see that our hearts are genuine, and, he want, and we want forgiveness. We want him. We want our father back. 
What does he do? Envelops us in his arms. Throws a big old party for us. Kills the fatted calf. Puts that royal ring back on our fingers. Restores us to the place or reminds us of who we are. We're a son. We're a daughter. We're always and forever loved. Not only the Father, but there's a party in heaven. Angels rejoicing every single time someone comes to saving faith in Jesus. Does that party in heaven extend sometimes to a celebration here on earth? Amen. Do we want to see that kind of celebration not only in the lives of our friends and families, but even in our hearts as well? Then believe it or not, your church attendance could be fantastic. You might have a very good working knowledge of scripture. People might look at you and say, dang, you are holy. But in reality, if there hasn't been a real awareness of true joy in our lives, then we're fooling everybody, including ourselves, but not God. We have to come back as the prodigal and hear him say, once again, my son who once was lost is found. There's where joy begins, and it leads to a strength you didn't think you even had. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.